0: Connect with us at mvfcolorado.com. Now, stay tuned for this week's message. We are so thrilled because we are uh, 12 weeks into this series called Marked. and, And if you haven't been with us, we're just walking our way through the book of Mark, one chapter at a time. And like I said, it is the 12th week, which means we are in chapter Twelve. So if you would, grab your Bibles, head over to Mark chapter 12 with us this morning, and uh, we're going to actually start in... Chapter 11. uh, We're going to back up just a little bit because I think it kind of leads into what we read in chapter 12. And while you're headed there, I want to um, just point your attention to the Ask Anything at the bottom of the screen as well. If you have any questions, you can uh, text those to the number on the bottom of the screen. If we have some questions, we'll get our pastors up here to try to answer some of those questions before you head out today. So just keep that in mind as I go through the message. Now, to kick off today, I just want to ask this question What's the hardest test you've ever taken? What's the most difficult test you've ever had to take in your life? I I think through my life, and I know there's many that I've taken that were so difficult, I think um, I probably failed more than I passed, but uh, I've taken some some hefty, hefty tests in my life. Uh, One in particular was when I was on the state patrol, I went after a certification called a DRE, and it was a drug recognition expert. And it, it, spent, it just took months and months of training, and the idea behind a drug recognition expert is they can call you in, you come in, you do a medical evaluation on somebody, and by the end of the, the evaluation, based on my writings, my report, they could prosecute somebody in the court of law uh, under the influence of whatever drugs and or drugs they were under the influence of. And it was always interesting because we would do the entire valuation, write up our entire report, submit it way before the blood results ever confirmed whether you were right or not, and so it was it was uh Pretty extensive the training in that Uh, I went through all the training I spent many many nights just sitting at the jail Waiting for people to come through that were all You know hopped up on something so I could do an Evaluation just to practice just to get uh, My time in and then the day Of the test came the test was ridiculous And not only was it written but I Also spent half that test in front of an Oral board uh, who was grilling You the whole time and and then of course It didn't stop there once I got through all of that I had to go and and I ended up uh, Going through the process to be declared as an expert witness when it came to drug recognition expert in three different district courts in Colorado, and so that was in and of itself a whole test, and so I remember doing all that, but here's, here's what's crazy about all that. Um, that really means nothing, because what would I have lost had I failed that test? Nothing but a job, right? And a job is a job. It's not that big of a deal. I'll go find another one. Um, have you ever had to take a test where your life depended on it? That's that's the kind of test we're talking about today. And the reason I bring all that up is because today in chapter 12, starting in 11 all the way through 12, you're going to see nothing but test after test after test after test. Jesus is going to be grilled by the religious leaders over and over and over again throughout the next several verses. Uh, there are seven events that we're going to read through fairly quickly today, and what you're going to notice, one takes place in chapter 11, the other six take place in chapter 12, and uh, to give you kind of some background on this, um, if you were here last week, you heard Pastor Mike's talk about the triumphal entry. Jesus has made his way to Jerusalem, he's entered into Jerusalem, and, and there was this big celebration, it was like a parade and a party celebrating Jesus as the coming king, and he makes his way into Jerusalem, and then on Monday, he goes, into the temple and he flips all the tables and and all of this is happening and by the time we get to our text today we are at tuesday morning it's just a few days before jesus goes to the cross two days after being celebrated on this triumphal entry one day after cleansing the temple on monday and here we are on tuesday and jesus is going to be grilled he's going to be tested over and over and over again well tested by who Well, several groups of people, let me just kind of spell them out this way. I want us to be familiar with these different groups because I think this will help us as we dive into the story because they're all going to take turns. They're going to jump in and go around or two with Jesus in the ring. And I want you to know who this is. Uh, We call them the Sanhedrin. It it makes up the entire religious government of, uh, of Judaism in the first century. And within that, you had three different groups. You had the Sadducees. They were the chief priests. And then you had the Pharisees. The Pharisees is what you would call the teachers or the teachers of the law. And you'll see them referred to that in the text today. Also, there's a group called the elders. These are the lay leaders within Judaism in the first century. And then I could throw out a couple more groups as well. There's another one that's going to come into play called the Herodians. And the Herodians are not really the Jews or the Jewish leaders. They're Jews. It's a group of Jews who have decided that the best path forward was to partner with the Roman Empire. And they like King Herod. They think Herod is awesome because he's keeping the peace between Rome and, and with the Jewish people. And they think that's their way of not only uh, their way forward, but getting rich, like Rome could be good for them. And so they're all in favor of Roman rule to a certain extent. And so they're called the Herodians because, of course, Herod, uh, Herod is their king. And then another group I could throw in there would just be the normal people, the crowds like you and me who are the bystanders, the the witnesses. They're watching everything happen, and they're taking it all in as they go. And what we find in Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 27, is the first test. It says, again, they entered Jerusalem, and as Jesus was walking through the temple area, the leading priests, the teachers of religious law, and the elders, all three of those groups, came up to Him. They demanded By what authority are you doing all these things? Who gave you the right to do them? What are they talking about? Well, his triumphal entry, his cleansing of the temple, uh, his teachings, his miracles. He says, I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. If you answer one question, Jesus replied, did John's authority to baptize come from heaven? Or was it merely human? Answer me. They talked it over among themselves. If we say it was from heaven, he will ask why we didn't believe John. But do we dare say it was merely human? For they were afraid of what the people would do because everyone believed that John was a prophet. So they finally replied, we don't know. And Jesus responded, then I won't tell you by what authority I do these things. Uh, we know from the text that they were looking for an opportunity to trap Jesus. And this, this is the test. They're testing who Jesus really is. Is he the Messiah? And we've said all along that the reason J- uh, John Mark wrote the book of Mark was to prove to us that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. And that's exactly what this test is supposed to prove. Who are you? By what authority do you do all of this? And Jesus appropriately answers their question with a question. Did John's authority to baptize come from heaven, or was it merely human? Answer me. Suddenly, the hunters have become the hunted. The tables have been turned on them. Their their discussion among uh, each other shows us that they were going to catch 22. There was no way they could answer this without looking bad. No matter what they said, the people were going to turn against them. And so, they cop out. They say, we don't know. And Jesus responds in kind. But notice Jesus didn't say, well, I don't know either. That's not what he said. Jesus actually said, then I won't tell you. See, he knows. He knows that John's authority came from heaven. He also knows that these Pharisees and these elders and these Sadducees are not ignorant. He also knows that they know they simply are refusing to acknowledge the truth. Because that would mean that Jesus is who he says he is. And Jesus thinks to himself, if they refuse the truth, uh, if they've refused the truth in the past, they're not going to receive it today. And it's a test. It's a test of the heart. How are they going to respond? Are they going to respond from a spiritual perspective? Yes, we believe the prophets. Yes, we believe that John was under the authority of heaven. And yes, we believe that God has sent you. Or are they going to respond from a political standpoint? And he finds out very quickly it's from a political standpoint. They're more concerned about keeping their position and their power than acknowledging that Jesus is the Messiah. Then Jesus goes on to tell a parable starting in chapter 12. And so if you flip over to chapter 12, we're going to begin our text today. And I want to show you that in this, uh, uh, just before we jump into it, there's a couple of other things I want to point out to you very quickly. When you read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll find out that uh, the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are all kind of written along the same path, recording the life of Christ. We call them the synoptic Gospels because of that. They're all, uh, they they sync up with each other. But what's interesting is they're told from different perspectives. So some of them include certain stories that others don't, and then you can put them together. And what you find out is in the middle of this scene, uh, even though we only have one parable recorded, the parable of the evil farmers, when you look over at Matthew 21 and Luke 20, you'll find out that Jesus actually tells three parables in this moment. Not only does he tell the one of the evil farmers, which we'll cover here in a minute, but there's another one of the two sons. The farmer comes out and asks him to work in the field. Are you going to work in the field today? Yes, I will. And he refuses to. And the second son, are you going to work in the field? No, I'm not going to work in the field. But yet he goes and works in the field. And Jesus' question is, which one is more pleasing to the father? The other parable that's told is the parable of the wedding banquet. They're throwing a wedding banquet and they're inviting all these people and they're not coming to the banquet. They've been invited, but they're not showing up. And all, of the, all three of these parables, and you'll see it here in the parable of the evil farmer as well, are all there to show how the Jews have rejected God's authority, how they're refusing to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And so let's jump into this first parable. It says in verse one, then Jesus began teaching them with stories. A man planted a vineyard. He built a wall around it, dug a pit for pressing out the grape juice, and built a lookout tower. Then he leased the vineyard to tenant farmers and moved to another country. At the time of the grape harvest, he sent one of his servants to collect his share of the crop. But the farmers grabbed the servant, beat him up, and sent him back empty handed. The owner then sent another servant, but they insulted him and beat him over the head. The next servant he sent was killed. Others he sent were either beaten or killed until there was only one left, his son, whom he loved dearly. The owner finally sent him, thinking, surely they will respect my son. But the tenant farmers said to one another, here comes the heir to this estate. Let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. So they grabbed him and murdered him and threw his body out of the vineyard. What do you suppose the owner of the vineyard will do, Jesus asked I tell you, he will come and kill those farmers and lease the vineyard to others. Didn't you ever read this in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is wonderful to see. The religious leaders wanted to arrest Jesus because they realized he was telling the story against them. They were the wicked farmers, but they were afraid of the crowd. So they left him and went away. See, all through the Old Testament, many times a vineyard is used as a metaphor to represent Israel or the Jews. And in this moment, Jesus is describing a vineyard that is well prepared. The owner's done all the work. He set up a wall to protect the crops from wild animals and from, from thieves coming in and stealing the crop. He's also created a pit where they can take the harvest of the grapes and stick them in there and stomp them and make, make wine. He's also built a tower where they can watch for fires or for robbers from there. Uh, he's done all of the hard work. All he's done now is just leased it to these evil farmers. And at the harvest, he sends a servant to get his share of the crop. This is how they leased out the property, is they would section off a percentage of the of the crop, whatever it was, or the, the cattle or whatever they were... Uh, whatever they were growing or raising there, and they would send it back to the owner. This is how people lease their land. And so this is not uncommon. This was not un, uh, you know, the owner overstepping his boundaries. This was a common practice. And everybody standing there hearing this parable would have thought, yes, that's exactly the right thing to do. But yet in this parable, what do they do? They beat him up. They send him back empty-handed. They hit him over the head. They kill him. And it goes one by one until finally it says that there's one left. And it's interesting the phrase that's used there. It says, his son whom he loved dearly. Now push pause for one minute. I want you to think about this this scene. Jesus is talking to a bunch of first century Jews who um, may have been there three years earlier when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. And during his baptism, God speaks from the heaven and says, this is my son, in whom I am well pleased, or whom I love dearly, right? So if they hadn't been there, chances are they've probably heard that story. And I think that this may well be the very first time that Jesus publicly claims to be the Son of God. And I know that because Caiaphas would remember this, and he would bring it up against Jesus just three days later during his trial. He'll accuse him of this and accuse him of blasphemy. Back in the parable, these tenants see the sun coming, and what do they do? They they think to themselves, look, if we kill the sun, there'll be no one else to demand the vineyard from us. We'll own it. We'll take it over ourselves. Who's Jesus talking about? He's talking about the religious leaders standing in front of him. The religious leaders know the correct interpretation because they go, hey, he's telling the story about us. We're the wicked farmers, but they missed the application. Instead of softening their hearts and going, Yes, we, we have rejected you. Yes, you you, through all of the signs and wonders and, and everything that you've taught, you are the Son of God. You are the Messiah, and we believe in you. They reject Him even more. Their hearts become even more hard. God sent His very own Son, who was standing right there in front of them, who was trying to get their attention, who was telling them a parable, and instead, what are they doing? Instead of listening, they're plotting to take his life in order that they might keep their power. Keep their own position. And in this parable, Jesus says, look, what you're about to do is you're about to fulfill Psalm 118, verse 22, which says the cornerstone, right? They'll reject Jesus. And they'll reject him by putting him on a cross and crucifying him. And in that very act... Jesus will be placed by God as the cornerstone. They fulfill it. Jesus actually, um, in his response to them, I think, sees how hard their heart is. And he makes a couple of statements. One of them says, didn't you ever read this in the scriptures? And I think that is meant to be very sharp. Like you are the religious leaders. You are the students of the scriptures. You know the Torah. You know the prophecies. You know it better than anybody else. Didn't you ever read this in scriptures? Like you should know better than everybody else. And you're rejecting me. And by rejecting me, you're rejecting God. Now, as a side note, Psalm one, eighteen, twenty-two. we read part of it already, but it's followed by these words in verse 22 and 23, it's uh, 23 and 24, it says, this is the Lord's doing, and it is wonderful to see, but it goes on to say, this is the day the Lord has made, we will rejoice and be glad in it. It's kind of interesting reading that on the tail end of that, thinking about Jesus getting ready to go and give his life at the cross, but I want you to know that although the death of Jesus was horrible, it's the source of our salvation, Even though it was ugly, God made it into something beautiful. He used the death of his son to provide a a way of salvation for you and for me. There is beauty in the cross. So they step aside and now the Pharisees and the Herodians decide they're gonna test Jesus. And in verse 13, it says, later the leaders sent some Pharisees and the supporters of Herod to trap Jesus into saying something for which he could be arrested. Listen to the piety in this statement. It's just amazing. Teacher, they said, we know how honest you are. You are impartial and don't play favorites. You teach the way of God truthfully. Now tell us, it is, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or shouldn't we? It says, Jesus saw through their hypocrisy and said, why are you trying to trap me? Show me a Roman coin and I'll tell you. When they handed it to him, he asked whose picture and title are stamped on it. Caesar's, they replied. Well, then Jesus said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. His reply completely amazed them. It's like the first tag team to try to test Jesus. And what's interesting about this is these two groups hated each other. Like they never got along. They were working toward two different outcomes and they hated each other until they decided that Jesus was a common threat and they were going to come together to try to trick him so that they might go to the Roman government and say, hey, he said not to pay taxes and therefore he needs to be killed. And Jesus saw right through it. And it must have burned them to be caught in the act, right? That Jesus calls out the hypocrisy. But I love his answer. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. And what he's saying is, look, the image on the coin is Caesar. That's his stuff. His image on it is on it, so therefore it belongs to him. And while he's doing this, I want you to think about the scene. Jesus is now looking around at all the men and women who have been made in the image of God. They have been imprinted with the image of God on them. They belong to God. He is their creator. But instead of recognizing Jesus as his son and the Messiah, they're rejecting him. Instead of following him, they're trying to trap him. They are in this very moment robbing God of what he's due. They are not turning to God. They're not believing in the prophecies and the scriptures. And so the Pharisees and the Herodians sit down because they're amazed at his response. And I don't know why, but now all of a sudden the Sadducees think, hey, we can get him. The others haven't, so they step up to test Jesus. In verse 18, it says, "'Then Jesus was approached by some Sadducees, "'religious leaders who say there is no resurrection "'from the dead. "'They pose this question. "'Teacher, Moses gave us a law that if a man dies, "'leaving a wife without children, "'his brother should marry the widow "'and have a child who will carry on the brother's name. Well, suppose there were seven brothers. The oldest one married and then died without children. So the second brother married the widow, but he also died without children. Then the third brother married her. This continued with all seven of them, and still there, was, there were no children. Last of all, the woman also died. So tell us, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? For all seven were married to her. Jesus replied, your mistake is that you don't know the scriptures. And talk about a mic drop, right? And you don't know the power of God. For when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. In this respect, they will be like the angels in heaven. But now, as to whether the dead will be raised, haven't you ever read about this in the writings of Moses, in the story of the burning bush, long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died? God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So he is the God of the living, not the dead. You have made a serious error. Now their question is pretty fascinating considering who the Sadducees are. Uh, The question has to do with marriage. And um, they're talking about this this idea of leveret marriage. It comes out of the, the law of Levi. And it's, it's obscure, like we don't see it very often. There's only two examples of it in the entire Old Testament, Tamar in Genesis chapter 38 and the book of Ruth with Ruth. That's it. Outside of that, we never see this play out. And yet the law says that if a man marries a woman and he dies and she doesn't have anyone to take care of her, she needs to marry his brother so that she could have children. This is the way that they took care of each other back then. This is the only way that they could make it. And so that was what the law was. And they come to Jesus using this as their question, but yet it's a twist because they say, when they die, whose wife is she? And remember what you read earlier in this this story? Like the Sadducees don't even believe in the resurrection. And yet their question is, who is she going to be married to in the resurrection? And Jesus gives two answers to the question. The first one relates to the power of God. The second one relates to scripture, both of which he says the Sadducees are ignorant in bam right I mean that's just he's just punching him right in the throat he says look first of all um, it's not what you think it's going to be the resurrection is not bodies like this and I can't explain it all just from what I see in scripture we're given perfected bodies and Jesus here says it's almost like angels now it's going to be different because obviously we're made in the image of God so it's different than that But yet, in that moment, he's saying there is no need for marriage. There is no need for sex. And if you think about it, what is marriage and sex for? It's for procreation. It's for physical pleasure and for earthly happiness. None of that will be needed in heaven. And I don't know how it all works, but I've got to read into this and think, okay, if I'm in my perfected body in heaven, in the presence of God, apparently that will be greater than anything I could ever achieve on this earth. And I won't need it. We won't need marriage, and we won't need sex, and we won't need all these other things. We'll be in the presence of God. And then Jesus' statement, haven't you ever read about this in the writings of Moses, was taken as it was intended. It was an insult. They just said, hey, and Moses gave us this law. And he turns around and says, haven't you ever read this about the writings of Moses? Like, you guys don't even know what you're citing here. Um, Jesus slams him again at the very end when he says, you have made a serious error. They're mistaken about this entire situation. And, and you might make a point that Jesus is being harsh with them, and I would agree with you, but I think there's a reason for it. Because they, um, they are unaware of what's about to happen. See, the final and greatest miracle is about to happen. Jesus, in a few days, will go to the cross. And a few days after that, he will what? Arise from the grave. Resurrection which they don't even believe in. And Jesus knows that if they miss this one, there's no hope for them to repent. There's no hope for them in eternal life. And Jesus' words, even though they're stern, they're fitting for such a critical topic and such a critical time. Even though these guys are testing him, I still think God's, Jesus' heart is breaking for them because they're not getting it. And yet they are supposed to know the scriptures better than anyone and it's interesting because the Sadducees are having this conversation with Jesus and he's just nailing them and standing on the outside are a bunch of Pharisees who are just applauding. They're loving this because they're like, yeah, you tell them, Jesus, because we've had the same debate with them for years and they've never listened to us, Right. And so in the moment, all of this stuff is happening. The crowds are just really excited about what Jesus is teaching. The fact he's putting all these religious leaders in their place. All this stuff is taking place. And I believe as we get to um, verse 28, you're going to see that there was one particular Pharisee. We're not given his name. We don't know what happens to him afterwards. We don't know anything about him. But I get this sense as I read through this text that there was this one Pharisee who was standing there taking all of this in. And I think his eyes were being opened. The the prophecy and the scripture and the Torah was coming to life for him. And in Jesus, he began to believe that there is a Messiah. That he is the son of God. And where do I get that from? Take a look at this. It says in verse 28, one of the teachers of religious law was standing there listening to the debate. And it doesn't say the whole group. It just says him. Him. He realized that Jesus had answered well, so he asked. He just steps up and asks, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Jesus replied, the most important commandment is this. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind, all your strength. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. The teacher of religious law replied, well, Well said, teacher. You've spoken the truth by saying there's only one God and no other. And I know it's important to love him with all my heart and with all my understanding and all my strength and to love my neighbor as myself. This is more important than to offer all of the burnt offerings and sacrifices required in law. Imagine a Pharisee saying that. Realizing how much the man understood, Jesus said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This Pharisee saw that Jesus had given a good answer to the Sadducees, and he asked a more reasonable, more important question, I believe. What's the most... Most important commandment. It, it likens itself to a couple of chapters before where we had the young rich man come up and say, How must I inherit eternal life? I believe that's the question here. What's important? And Jesus tells him, and and we sit here and we read, uh, especially at Mountain View Fellowship, we read this a lot and we talk about it. Love God, love others. Love God, love others. And we think that this is simple, but you have to go back and put yourself in their sandals and go, in the first century, this is a different question. Jesus has not gone to the cross yet. He has not risen yet. And with 613 oral laws and all the Old Testament laws and the Ten Commandments, this question is not answered as simply as this. Like, they've wrestled and debated with this for long times, for a long time, and Jesus says, um, the first command is Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4 and 6, 4 through 6, which is what they refer to as the Shema, to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And, and in this moment, Jesus is quoting the Shema. Now, the Shema is just this Hebrew word that means hear. It's not like here, like you and I think of here. It's not just sound entering the ear canal. When they say Shema, it's, it's complete. It's this whole holistic. You hear it, you understand it, you apply it, and you live it out. That's what, that's what that means, is Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and you're living that out. That's the first most important commandment. The second one comes out of Leviticus 19, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says both of these are equally important. Now, what I find fascinating about this text is not only is the teacher of the law impressed with Jesus, but Jesus is impressed with him. And I got a smile at that one. Could you imagine what that would be like to have a conversation with Jesus and have Jesus look at you and go, you're not far from the kingdom of God. How great would that have been? He approached Jesus respectfully and he asked him a serious, important question from the heart. Jesus answered him, and then he publicly acknowledges how great Jesus' answer is. And it's in that moment that Jesus affirms him by saying, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You're passing the test. Keep it up. Now that Jesus has disarmed their ambushes, he turns the tables on him. And he asked them to answer one of his questions. Verse 35, it says Later, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple, he asked, Why do the teachers of religious law claim that the Messiah is the son of David? For David himself, speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies beneath your feet. Here's the question Since David himself called the Messiah my Lord, how can the Messiah be his son? The large crowd listened to him with great delight. Like they're enjoying this. The crowd is really getting into this. And, and Jesus takes a prophecy and he, and he twists it a little bit. He really challenges them, them, them on it. See, by this time, the religious leaders, I think, are thoroughly frustrated with Jesus. But the crowds are ecstatic. They're enjoying every moment of it. And everyone in this crowd knew the scriptures. They knew that it says in scripture that the Messiah would be the son of David. Do you remember what we read two weeks ago where the blind man is crying out to Jesus? Jesus, son of David. Jesus, son of David. And he was was declaring that he was the Messiah. That's what's going on here. But Jesus' question is difficult for a couple reasons. First of all, in this first century culture, the father was always greater than the son. Secondly, Jesus is quoting Psalm 110 verse 1. These Pharisees, these religious leaders, they knew it. They couldn't deny it. But here's the kicker. They couldn't explain it either. See, somebody being in flesh and declaring to be God was blasphemy. And this is exactly what they would um, charge Jesus with here in a few days. Do you know why they couldn't answer his question? How could the son of David be the Messiah? Is because it hadn't happened yet. See, the answer is going to come in a few days on Calvary. It's going to come when Jesus rises from the grave. The fact that Jesus was part of the, the line of David. This hasn't been fulfilled yet. This is why they knew it. They, under, they, they could read it, but they couldn't explain it because it hadn't happened yet. And Jesus is kind of Twisting this on him a little bit. He knew they couldn't explain it. And in in an indirect way, he's standing right in front of them as the fulfillment of that. This had to be so embarrassing for these religious leaders to realize how little they knew about basic scripture. They were outgunned by an uneducated Galilean. And not only had he slipped through all their theological nooses, but he had stumped them on a simple question from one of their favorite Bible verses that they couldn't explain themselves. They were standing in their home court. Like they literally are at the temple in Jerusalem. It's their field and Jesus is schooling them. Now this is the conclusion to Tuesday's teaching in the temple. The Jewish leaders withdraw in defeat and they go to start to plot out Jesus' assassination. The crowds continue to gather. They continue to come in great numbers to listen to Jesus. Jesus. And Jesus turns to them and he reprimands the Pharisees in verse 38. It says, Jesus also taught, Beware of those teachers of religious law, for they like to parade around in flowing robes and receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces. And how they love the seats of honor in the synagogues and the head table at banquets. Yet they shamelessly cheat widows out of their property. And then pretend to be pious by making long prayers in public. Because of this, they will be more severely punished. And then Jesus turns, he walks out of the temple, and it's sad to say, but this is the last time he'll be in the temple. He leaves it for the last time before he goes to the cross. He goes out and he sits in a common court area called the court of women. Where there's these 13 trumpet-shaped bronze receptacles, they're all made for gathering offerings. Why are they trumpet-shaped, and why are they bronze? Because they love to hear the sound of change clinging down through the trumpet, right? And they made a big show out of it. Rich people would show up and, and they would dump the coins in it. it would make all this sound, and people would be in awe of how much they had given to the temple. It was a show. And Jesus positions himself there to watch the people as they came in and gave their offerings. And look at this in verse 41. Jesus sat down near the collection box in the temple and watched as the crowds dropped in their money. Many rich rich people put in large amounts. Then a poor widow came and dropped in two small coins. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has given more than all the others who were making contributions, for they gave a tiny part of their surplus, but she, poor as she is, has given everything she had to live on. This is how this chapter ends. Test after test after test. And it all had to do with the heart, and we get to the very end, and Jesus praises the poor woman, Because of a great sacrifice Uh, There's more than than what meets the eye here There's context And and I want you to keep in mind Just in the passage just before this Jesus actually criticized the Pharisees Because as he put it They shamelessly cheat widows out of their property And yet he turns around And he praises this widow For putting too little And we call them mites It's just a word that means like sliver Um, They're just these little bitty shavings of metal That's all it is And if you were to add it up, both of those together wouldn't even equal one 64th of a day's wage. Like if you dropped it, you wouldn't even bother bending over and picking it up. And yet she brings it and drops it in. And Jesus excitedly calls his disciples to him. And they must have thought, you know what? Jesus is calling us to him, let's go. And as they're going, they must have this great expectation of what he was gonna tell them and show them because of all the big big events that have been taking place all the last few days, like what is he gonna show us now, right? And and I, I wonder, were they shocked to discover Jesus pointing out a poor widow dropping in two little slivers of metal and his praise of her? And they picked up on something that I think so many people missed. And it's the fact that Jesus looks at the size of the sacrifice, not the size of the offering. And he calls us to give our lives to him. Because as you guys know, if you s- stick with us the next couple of weeks, you're going you're to read with us as we go to the cross and we watch Jesus give his life to pay for our sins. The test, all the questions, they've been posed in in different ways, but really the big question, the the test in the text is, who is Jesus? That's what they're trying to get to the bottom of. Who is Jesus? They were asking it in the first century, and you and I are asking it today, 2,000 years later. It has always been the question, and it will always be the test. And how you answer this changes everything. Everything. Not just this life, but where you spend eternity. God loved us so much, he sent his son to die on a cross for us, to pay for our sins, a price that we couldn't pay, and he rose again so we could have eternal life. Who do you say Jesus is? It changes everything. I pray there's not a single one of you in here that wouldn't answer it other than he is the Savior. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And yet as I prepared for this message all week long I have to tell you that in my heart of hearts I struggled because I was hit with this impression that there might be a few of you here today that would hear this and would leave here today rejecting Jesus. I pray I'm wrong. The Pharisees, the Sadducees the elders, they all rejected him because they couldn't answer the question, who is Jesus? How do you take that test? What's your answer today? Because it changes everything. Let me pray for us. I pray that you can answer it with Messiah. God, we come to you right now as a group of people who do struggle Lord we struggle in believing in things that we can't see and yet Lord you've given us more than enough to believe we we have your life recorded we have the the scriptures we have the the filled prophecy we have everything and Lord I I pray specifically for those in the room that are rejecting you maybe their heart heart has gotten too hard I pray that you would just touch their heart that you would soften soften it that they would be able to open up their eyes and see you kind of like this one Pharisee did. Lord, I pray that they would, whether it's today, um, tomorrow, whenever it might be, I pray that they would change their mind, that they would declare you as their Savior. Lord, I pray for those of us that um, do declare you as our Savior and yet um, come tomorrow morning, we live a different life. We go on, and Lord, I ask for forgiveness. Uh, many, many times we get up and we just continue on as though you don't exist. And Lord, I pray that this would be different. Today would change things, that we would live our lives. Um, we would love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our, our mind, our strength. Lord, I pray that you would use this to grow us up in you, mold and shape us into people that look more and more like you. We pray all this brings glory and honor to the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, Amen.